This is Coder Radio, episode 393? Wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. This is a William Shatner to the intro, but I'm not William Shatner. My name is Chris, and this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. A cloud guru now includes cloud break playgrounds, so, you know, go spin up an Azure AWS or Google Cloud Sandbox. Boom! On their dime, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. I already said my name, so there's that. I'll just introduce Mike. Hello, Mike. What's up, Chris? So I have three exciting things to tell you at the start of the show. Ooh. Right off the bat. Is it winter solstice? Because hallelujah, right? Okay, I have four exciting things to tell you right at the start of the show. It is winter solstice, so let us all get our drums and strip naked and go into the forest. One, can you hear this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, cherry blues, baby. Oh, new keyboard? I bought the cherry blue version of the code keyboard I always use, but I did ah. go for the smaller profile this time. Mm, and is that uh, is that better? Yeah, because I have a smaller desk now. So mm-hmm. it, it sounds nice. I like the sound of it. I can tell. All right, what else you got for me? Yeah. I am 100% on Linux again. I am on the Thaleo right now. I returned the MacBook Air, which I guess that's two things. And just to calm you down from all the excitement, can you hear this? Ah, that would be Centauri Japanese whiskey for our new <laughs> evening edition of the show because I do not have my son today. So I like all these things. I like all these things. Wait, my hearing angels? How strong is that? <laughs> <laughs> I had one thing in the studio is I had a spot left of gin, so I'm having myself a half gin and tonic. It is the evening now. You know, we're doing the show. We have the Coder, Coder Radio happy hour at 5 p.m., 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, then the show kicks off about a half hour after that, although today we recorded the uh, the Coderly. Just a reminder, if you would like to hear the Coderlies, you can subscribe. That's right. Become a member. Support the show. Keep us independent. All of that good stuff. CoderQA.co. Become part of our quality assurance team. And really, let's be honest, keeping us on the air is good QA. That's good QA. <laughs> yes, let, let me try all the crappy cross-platform frameworks for you. It's, yeah. You're probably saving yourself a lot of money. Yeah, there you go. Um, so first of all, uh, I want to say uh, shout out to all my uh, Robe Bros out there, and uh, Robe Bros includes ladies, who uh, wrote in and said that they are 100% on board with the Robe idea. So today I am rocking, again, the minimum viable Robe, and after my research over the week, and based on the feedback I received from the Robe Bros, um, I think a more towel-like texture and less fluffy texture is the way to go. Still thinking smoking jacket. I think there's room for both, my friend. I think there's room for both. Okay. The Chris edition and the Mike edition, is that what we're thinking? Well, I think I think you could have additions. Like, you could have the 2021 robe, right? And then there could be a 2022 robe, you know? Oh, and you could, and then like the smoking jacket, we could think about that. Maybe that's like a fall item that we update every fall. The, the you know the addition, the addition. Is it like the Apple Watch edition? We're going to charge like five times as much. Yeah, we'll have the addition. Which the only difference is like any logo we have on there is stitched in gold instead of the regular white. That'll be the difference. <laughs> this robe thing. Basically, what I just need now is somebody to say, Chris. Listen, you dummy, this is how you convert this into a sellable item. Because, like, I could find one-off people to create us a coder robe, kind of, but then they don't, like, have a store to sell it. Like, I need a way to go from stitch to sale. Um, and then this ro- there's people waiting in the wings to buy this product. So somebody just needs to step up and work with me here to get this thing on the market. Because we got, we got br- robe bros ready to roll. So for folks who just listen in and don't, like, hang out in the IRC or Telegram or whatever, he's not kidding. There are yeah. people <laughs> who are chomping at the bit to get these mm-hmm. damn ropes. Oh, I mean, we got a lot of email about it. <laughs> a lot of email. Like, I was shocked at how much this robe idea has taken off. I think I'm on to something here. Everybody likes to be comfortable. You know, it's it's it might be winter solstice, but we still got a lot of action here in the winter to get a robe on the market, I think. So. I mean, I can't really talk. I have a glass of whiskey, a mad bot or a polo shirt, and no pants on, so... <laughs> that means it's time to do some feedback. So one of the other things we got a lot of emails about is keyboards. And I just have a couple of them. Just I'm just going to do a couple of them. Uh, Giorgio wrote in on the subject of keyboards, and he said that I I also had that experience that Chris talked about, where you start to you start to work with a good keyboard, and it it's kind of life changing because you're you're interfacing with it so often 
that it is something nice that feels good to touch actually makes a noticeable improvement in your quality of life while working. Uh, so he says he was afraid to let go of the arrow keys, but he wanted a small 60% keyboard. But he went with the, uh, I think it's the Anapro or something, An- Anpro. I'll have a link in the show notes. There's a neat software trick, though, that lets you kind of map arrow key buttons on there and stuff in a way that works really well, he says. And it has different Bluetooth channels, so you can you can actually pair it with four devices. It has good backlighting, so it's right, right kind of in the sweet spot where I wanted something. So I'm going to be checking that out. Um, but we also kind of got a, we also got some people that wrote in and explained what they use the custom keyboard firmwares for, including switch or keyboard layout. So that way they can use exceptionally small keyboards, uh, lots of really, really geeky stuff. And there's a little bit of a tip I have for you. If you're getting into matrix, the chat program, not the movie, there is a mechanical keyboard matrix chat room where people are talking more about this. And I just joined it myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it because I think Matrix is starting to see some nice adoption, and this is a perfect community for it. And uh, so I have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check that out. And then Oliver reminded us that there's actually a ThinkPad keyboard that's essentially like the keyboard, the beloved keyboard from ThinkPads that's sold as a standalone product called the TrackPoint Keyboard 2. And uh, I'd forgotten all about this, but I know, you know, Popey from uh, from Canonical... Uh, he loves these things. I know he swears by it. He even has the track point, the little red nipple in the middle of the keyboard. Uh, link to that in the show notes as well. Lots of good feedback on keyboards. There's people, uh, people too, that are just now kind of catching up. <laughs> and so they're just, they're like, oh, I have to respond to the keyboard stuff. <laughs> it's cool. I, I'm not saying all of it's going to make it on air, but I will read it. And uh, I do respond to a lot of it too when I'm going through and reading it. But we have to move from keyboards to chairs, Mike. Just a just a like offshoot of the conversation we started last week about work from home setups. Nicholas writes in and said, "You asked for uh, feedback on how we changed our workspace while working from home this year. This one isn't directly related to interfacing with the computer, but I recently upgraded my chair, which you know I previously used for maybe two or three hours a day before working at home, but then had to." increase that considerably. So I went from an executive style leather chair, I used to have one of those, to a proper tasking chair, he says, with a steelless case leap. And he goes on to say, it made a huge difference to my back and neck pain. Having proper range of adjustments that you can make throughout the day is so much nicer than being stuck in the exact same position all day. So out of curiosity, what chairs are you and Mike using? I... I don't know if I want to start. My answer is so embarrassing. Do you do you have any kind of non-embarrassing chair answer for him? Because mines are bad. Mine are really bad. I mean, up until like a week ago, I did. <laughs> so I have recently moved. And in the move, I broke both my standing desks because it turns out there is no good way to take out wood screws. Oh. And I was unable to fit my chair through a doorway. So I had to leave it behind. I am now currently sitting on a chair from Amazon, and uh, yeah, it's not what you want. What happened to me is I got like one of those mesh net chairs for my office upstairs, and that does pretty good. I got like kind of a cheaper one, but I really, it is pathetic in the studio. These chairs hurt. They hurt to sit in. They make a lot of noise, which you can often hear in the background of our audio is my chair noise, and they um, are cheap feeling. Like, they feel like they're about to fall apart. Yeah. But I I bought a different series of chairs, and none of them worked. And here I am, I'm like, well, I've blown, like, almost $200 on chairs, and none of this works. And I just kind of gave up and stuck with the crap <laughs> for a while. And it's ridiculous. So the problem with good stuff, I found, is every time you, like, need to move either offices or house or whatever, the good stuff is very hard to disassemble and reassemble well. Okay, so the chair I used to have was... um I think the company's name is Autonomous. And it's got like, you know, the, the fancy like lumbar support, you know, three adjustable positions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then I had an uplift standing desk. And honestly, if I had to pick, like if I was going to rebuy one, I think I would just deal with the shitty chair and I would get a standing desk. That's kind of been my thinking. I actually, I actually just about a month or two ago uh, got a standing desk. I haven't actually put it together yet because I'm planning to just redo my whole office. 
And that's the rant I'm going to go. I'm just going to try to stand more. While coding, I, I previously was doing a ton of standing, and it does limit the back pain and the RSI. If you Now, the standing that I had is one of these uh, motorized adjustable ones. It's like as you feel different during the day, because I'm, you know, I'm a very picky pain in the ass, you can adjust it differently. The problem is it starts at $500. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a pain to set up. Yeah. And very, very heavy. So it's one of those things that it doesn't seem that bad when you take it in in parts and you build it. But if you ever need to move it, one, it's probably not going to come apart well. At least that was my experience. And two, it's it's inc- so heavy and so awkward that you probably can't fit it assembled through a doorway. So I'm sort of... Like right now, my my new setup is I have the Thaleo sitting on a very questionable placard Amazon uh, vinyl record holder. <laughs> so, you know, if you hear a crash, I have an Amazon little computer desk that my 27-inch monitor is basically as big as... <laughs> I am sitting in an Amazon. So basically, this episode is brought to you by Amazon Basics. Oh man, it's been a good year for Amazon. They've, oh, they've, oof. Bezos is the king. They're basically my short, my store for anything but immediately fresh goods or something is essentially Amazon. When I was locked down, I had to order food from Amazon. I know I would do it. I, uh, I unfortunately established. I got a, you know, I as I've documented on the show, I had a bit of an Uber Eats habit over the summer, which I had to break. It's not easy. That guy gets expensive real quick. I, I was doing that too, yeah. We also had another email in about modifying home workspaces from Simon. And he had a couple of really good uh, items that people might want to consider purchasing for their desk area. And I can actually, funny enough, vouch for both of these. Um, so Simon says, responding to your workspace modifications, I wanted a second low-cost screen and some flexibility for its placement, which is exactly what I wanted. So I went with the following two items a tablet mount, and this is a tablet mount with a long gooseneck that you could kind of position the tablet anywhere you want, and then it clamps down on the desk. I have one of these, and it's extremely useful for doing video calls from a tablet, which are often just simpler than doing video calls from a desktop. And um, so I got one of these as well for my work setup at home, and my wife uses it for her video calls and any client calls that she's done. And then the second item that Simon wanted to pass along is a 15-inch 1080p portable display. And I just got one of these as well. He likes his a little better than I like mine. And mine was, so this is $210 on Amazon. Mine was cheaper and it was 1440p. And I wanted that to match the native resolution of my laptop. However, the quality of both of the two that I have now bought, so I ended up I ended up spending more than I would have. I'm going to send one of them back. Is trash. It's one of the worst screens I've ever looked at. The colors are horrible. The lighting is horrible. The mount screw holes show through like as little pressure points on the screen. They're bad. But what these things are, it, mine in the case of mine, like $150 or something. They're cheap. Little portable screens. Not super bright, 500 nits, but you don't need a lot. And they come with a leather case like a tablet would. But all this only is a monitor. But it comes presented like a tablet, and it takes HDMI in or USB-C in, or some of them take DisplayPort. And it is such an easy way to quickly add a second display with some decent resolution to a workspace. So if you have a laptop or you have a limited amount of space, you can get this mount that Simon's talking about, this gooseneck mount, and you combine it with one of these portable displays, and you have yourself a really simple second screen. I actually just mounted mine to my monitor mount, and um, I like it a lot because it's essentially the same size and same resolution as my laptop, and I just really need it for text chats and terminal windows. I'm not using it to look at graphics or play games or anything like that, so I'm just living with the picture quality as it is, but these two items together, the portable monitor and the gooseneck are a really great way for somebody that needs a little bit of flexibility in their setup. Mm. They have really crappy speakers built in too, if you care. It is a nice quick way to get a second screen without having to spend, you know, big monitor money. And I'll have those linked in the show notes. If people are interested, just go to coder.show slash 393. All right, now we're getting into the meat. Now we're getting into the good stuff here. The beef, the chicken, yes. 
or the snake. Ricardo writes in. He says, uh, hello, Chris and Mike, first-time caller, long-time listener. I'd like to take the opportunity to provide just a little bit of feedback on 392, seduced by the snake. I wonder what Mike will eventually report in 2021 when Python inevitably becomes too slow for ML work. Maybe forcing him to look under the hood and delve into other languages, perhaps? Python has a lot of community momentum, but will that last when you can have something like Julia that is both fast and easy to read? And if we're talking about machine learning, I guess maybe even Swift might be a better option. Shots fired! There's no need for hate speech. Wow! I mean, he's really thinking this Python's not, you know, it's not going to be fast enough for you. It's going to be too damn slow. Are you doing a lot of ML? Yeah, we're, we're actually kicking off a pretty significant ML project. So, okay, here's the dirty little secret about most Python libraries you use. Large portions of them are written in C or C++. And a certain maniac you all know and apparently like to know which keyboard we're all using <laughs> yep. can also write those in. Get ready for it. Are you ready? Rust. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. So when you need performance, it's either C++ or Rust. Hmm. But for the just application logic, you can totally use Python. Um, you have a good point that Python is not exactly the fastest language in the world, but I neither was Ruby. I would argue a little bit that when I say ML, I mean TensorFlow, and Google has done a pretty significant job of making the TensorFlow libraries that interface with Python very fast, granted by not writing them in Python for the most part. But that is one of the strengths of Python, is that when you need it, it is super easy to interface with C, C++, and if you are a crab person like me, Rust. Yeah, great point, and uh, I love that you got a Rust mention in there. We did get some. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about FFI here, by the way, right? Because, of course, I'm talking about, like, there's, like, language-native ways to do it. Um, although you could use FFI. There's nothing wrong with FFI. But We did get somebody who wrote in and said, you know, uh, what about Rust? Oh, forget about Python. So there you go. You preemptively answered their question. <laughs> I always have to mention Rust because, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like the social contract with the internet. Grav writes in and wants some help getting started with Mac development. He says, big fan of the show and uh, hopped on with the relaunch. And it actually inspired me to pick up software development. Uh, now, he says, I'm starting with Python, but I think I'm really interested in learning how to develop for the M1. It seems like, and maybe it's just me, that Apple doesn't do a very good job of actually explaining how to learn how to code for the Macs, despite... What? Apple's documentation is bad? Who said that? Nobody ever. No, this would be the first time I've ever seen... Everybody's ever said that, no. I mean, they're the richest company in the world with pretty much unlimited funds and... Yeah, but who wants to write documentation? Yeah, all right. <clears throat> he says, do you have any tips... Uh, on how to get started and follow my passion with software development. So he seems like he wants to get into this, and he feels like maybe I should follow something I'm actually excited about, developing for the M1. Sure. But yeah, you know, geez, like it feels like now is the hardest time ever trying to pick how to develop for the Mac. That's exactly what I was going to say. So you have picked the most difficult time <laughs> to start developing for Mac OS, ignoring the M1, because... It, the reason you're probably, so like Py you could write Mac GUI apps in Python, no problem. The problem is many of those toolkits are not ready for the M1 right now. The other problem is Mac OS itself is transitioning as is like iOS, but the, the transition is a lot more dramatic on Mac OS. Um, I mean, I've I, I got to go a little deep in this for it to make sense. All right, buckle up. All right. Back in the day, we had something called AppKit. AppKit had a separate app called, I believe it was Interface Builder. I think they still call it that now, but it's oh, built yeah. into Xcode. And it used a system called Springs and Struts. That was basically, if you've ever used NetBeans, so yay, old reference, um, you know what I'm talking about. Then came this little darling called iOS, which had something called UIKit, which kind of used Springs and Struts, but not really, and quickly evolved, and blah, 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 blah. It was basically a much more modern implementation, not built off of, but certainly inspired by AppKit. Uh, a good example is the way table views work in AppKit is basically insane, but the way they work in iOS is much easier, and in fact, they've simplified them again with the release of Swift. Mac OS is finally catching up, right? So you, let's just say you're, you're sitting there greenfield and you're saying, I'm going to build a Mac app to do whatever it is that you want to do, right? Like, I don't know, like, stalk Chris's Twitter feed. <laughs> you have several choices, and these are all native choices. Old school app kit. That is probably not the right choice because it's 
obviously on the way out. You have Swift UI, which I didn't even mention, but it's like a more reactive programming version of, um, you know, doing it right. So it's more declarative UIs, things like that. Um, but that is very new and kind of rough right now. You have the weird UI kit inspired additions to AppKit with like the relative layout stuff. That's also on the way out. You also have, oh my God, Catalyst, is that it? Right, where you could write an iOS app yep. and run it on the Mac. That comes with tons of limitations though. Uh, but that might be the least insane option. Or, because you're learning Python, eventually, like Qt and the other vendors will let you do you know, Python GUI development on Mac, will get their crap together and support the M1. I wouldn't be surprised if that's like January. Yeah. Soon. So maybe you just develop it in a third-party toolkit. Now, things get rough if you want to go into the Mac App Store because now you have to be a little more careful about, well, does this toolkit... Can I... See this? Oh, my God, app, app notarization. Can this? Can an application, a binary built in this toolkit, follow the Mac OS notarization guidelines? And I'm not going to go into that, but if you want to be on the App Store, your best bet is probably something that you know can do notarization. Um, yeah, like it sucks right yeah. now. This is the worst possible time to be doing this. I think too, like to, to truly have some level of success on Apple's platforms, you typically need to be skating to where their puck is going. And I would think now, if you were going to build an app today for their platforms, I would be investing in the technologies that let you deliver that app on iOS, Mac OS iPad OS, you're probably going to see more success there just because that's where Apple's going to be putting their efforts in both probably back-end development resources, but also in marketing and promotional resources. So you bring up a great point, Chris. There is a fourth option. Yeah. He just builds an iPad app, right, in Xcode and Swift UI. And ships it for the Mac. And just ships it on the M1. Yeah. Right. And now you're going to be limited because obviously it's an iPad app and but Chris is completely right that in a year, it's very obvious that they're going to keep blurring the lines between, you know, iPad and Mac. Um, so I, yeah, I'd probably go that route. He's right. Yeah, and and the reality is, uh, if you're successful at it, you'll be able to monetize it pretty straightforward in that in that dynamic. I mean, it doesn't work for every app for sure, but also the the, the iOS is such a bigger market too. If you're actually trying to like sell it, yeah. Um, all right, so Dom writes in. He wanted to know. If we had heard of a another kind of organizational technique, uh, he says, uh, by the way, he's also someone in the market for a bathrobe. A lot of people were. I appreciate that. You keep Everybody keep letting me know oh, so Jesus I can gauge the Christ. interest. <laughs> uh, he says, you mentioned various agile techniques from time to time, but I wonder whether you're familiar with weighted shortest job first. Okay, so I hadn't heard of this. Have you heard of this before? This is new no, to me. I have no idea what that is. Okay. Well, he says the principle is simple. You work out the cost of delay, effectively the value, of a piece of work, and then divide that by the effort it would take to deliver it. Repeat this for each item of work and see where it comes out with the highest number. If you don't know the cost of a delay or value for the effort, estimate it. You can do that however you like, but the best way I find to use a sh- is to use a, a certain sequence, abstracting that So he says, then I abstract that problem somewhat using a nonlinear sequence, which will help you focus on what is really valuable. Boy, he's really nerding out on this. He says, the result gives me clarity, uh, and it helps me reach realizations, and it's been a quite useful exercise for me. So it's interesting. So he kind of looks at the effort. He looks at how much it's going to take, and then he divides things up. And he also weighs in, what's going to have the most impact if I delay it? And then it's essentially like a systematic approach to the squeaky wheel. It gets the grease. Uh, but he wanted to pass it along. Weighted shortest job first. I've never heard of that. That's an interesting approach. I like the name, i got to say. I like it. Yeah. We would like your feedback, including uh, what you've done for uh, your work-from-home setups over the year to make it a little better for you, or whatever your new normal workspace is. I uh, just posted some pictures of my current setup, instagram.com slash instachrislass. I don't Instagram much. You're on Instagram. Well, where do you post pictures now if you want to be able to link pictures to an album? Uh, me, I post them DMs on Tinder, but that's different. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, like, so that's what I use it for. I'm like, I can put a link to that in the show notes, but uh, I don't really, 
Otherwise, use it. So it's not like a great way to get a hold of me. <laughs> People do it. Try, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything's got DMs, Mike. Everything's got DMs. The best way, if you want to get a hold of us, is to go to coder.show slash contact and send us in your work from home setup mods uh, and other topics we've talked about too if you're catching up you can still send us in your feedback because it's still nice to get people's thoughts and kind of get a snapshot of where the audience is on some of these topics so even if you're in the back catalog and you feel like we've moved on you can still send us a note it won't necessarily make it on air but we'll still take it and we'd love to read it and if you run a bathrobe chris would really love to hear from you that is for sure that's going to the top of the list Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. And you go there to support the show. Linode is my cloud provider. I started using them a couple of years ago after I'd sold the business because I knew I wanted to separate out the work stuff and the personal stuff. And I tried Linode because I'd seen them around forever at a lot of the events I'd gone to. And we'd even kind of made eyes at each other a couple of times and like, hey, you want to do something together? But at the time, I had another sponsor, so just there was, it didn't really fit. But I could sense that they were genuinely a member of the community. And I could sense that I, I was drawn to their kind of freewheeling, independent style that lets Linux users go a little bit further than the other providers do, but also makes it totally approachable if you're not an expert. And I was like, I know, I get that. I like what they're doing there. I'm going to have to check back in on this. So when I had a chance to set it up, brand new for myself for the first time. I had to try them out. And I didn't get a $100 60-day credit like like y'all do. <laughs> I paid for it. But if you go to linode.com slash coder, you will get the 60-day $100 credit. But what I really get about them is their love for Linux and open source. And they support open source initiatives that I, I, I've benefited from, like Linux Fest Northwest. You know, I'm like this year, not being able to go to these conferences. I am so grateful for the companies like Linode that made those events possible. And Man, do I look forward to them coming back. And, of course, they're sponsors of Kubuntu. I may get into Plasma a little bit later today. I think it's one of the great desktops for Linux out there. And they've been a sponsor of the Kubuntu project. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing because they saw where this technology was going. They understood what it could do. So they got there before anybody else. I can really respect that, too. And unlike entry-level hosting providers, they don't lock you into their platform. They let you get access to customize and control your server to fit your needs. And they have tons of easy-to-get-going stuff, too. If you're just looking to get the base system deployed and then start using your application, they've got one-click deployments for tons of apps or base systems. Just over the weekend, I set up another Ubuntu LTS with Docker. And I'm just from there, I'm, I'm up and running with my applications in minutes. Try it out. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to support the show and get $100 credit. And thank you to Linode for making it possible for this show to be free, linode.com slash coder. All right, Mr. Dominic, we've been dancing around this for pretty much the whole episode. The snake love is super strong. We kind of made it official now on the show, but it, it actually senses like, to me, based on some of the conversations we've had, I think this is a bigger change and shift for you than probably what we've even managed to convey on the show. Like this is like foundational shift stuff here. Yeah, so I think uh, if you are a Coderly subscriber, you can hear the business rationale for it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But basically, long story short, um, I am going deep with for myself and my company into Python. Just the Cliff Notes version. If you want the details, you have to subscribe. See, Chris, I'm trying to make us money. <laughs> you know what? You're getting on your game. I can tell. I'm getting on my game. <laughs> Look at this. Switching between a bunch of different software stacks kind of makes no sense. Rails has been great, but as we move into more embedded things, and we still do a bunch of Rails, so if you happen to be one of our Rails customers, don't freak out. But as we move into more embedded stuff, Python has become a bigger, uh, just a hugely important part of the business as we're moving into more ML stuff. And actually, Rabot has been rewritten in Python, so uh, there's a lot there. So real quick. Some fun facts about Python for those of you who are toiling away in the Swift sulfur mines. Oh, Yes. There is a schism between Python 2 and Python 3. I don't think we need to go into this because it's been years in the making, but basically they're effectively different languages. I know someone's going to email in and say, well, technically not, but they're they're different, right? So when I say Python, I always mean Python 3. Right. I, I know that just from the Linux side, when systems transitioned from 2 to 3, it was, a, it was a big deal. It was a disaster, right? It was, yeah. 
frameworks that I have been enjoying. Flask. For those who don't know, Flask is like the Sinatra equivalent uh, for Python. Sinatra is a Ruby web development framework. Very thin, very lean. Kind of, it gives you the basics and you have to scaffold up to what you want. But thanks to Wes Payne for recommending Fast API to me several months ago because, damn, I am loving Fast API. Oh, great. Yeah, really cool framework. Uh, gives you a lot of what you basically will need for a uh, web application, but doesn't kind of get in your way. It's not super heavy, if that's a way I could say that. Like, And then Q and I have a relationship that is troubled. I've spoken to their reps many times, including this week. Oh, really? Hmm. We keep kind of buying each other drinks and dancing a little bit. You know, maybe we'll have a cigarette, whatever. But we just can't seal the deal. However, with Qt6, I don't know. It's been working out. It's got better Python bindings. Um, it now supports Metal on Apple platforms. They've done a lot for Vulkan as well and a lot for just kind of modernizing how they handle their UI stuff and modernizing and frankly making a lot more convenient their Python bindings. Yeah, and they, they've really gotten a place where it solves some serious problems. It Right, the problem being that everything being an Electron app is a bad idea. <laughs> it just kills my soul, that's all. Well, I currently am negotiating a trial of the Qt6 Python bindings. So... I will report back. Oh, yeah, I'd love to know. So far, so interesting. Pylance, with all respect to my wonderful loves at JetBrains, there is absolutely no reason for PyCharm if you have VS Code in Pylance. Pylance, for those who don't know, is a uh, kind of super-duper IntelliSense for Python and Visual Studio Code. It is built on Microsoft's uh, PyWrite doesn't really matter, but it's like their static analyzer thing. But this is fantastic. I have been putting it toe-to-toe with PyCharm. Now, I'm still more familiar with PyCharm because I've been using JetBrains for over a decade. Uh, those who don't know, JetBrains makes a bunch of IDEs, right? Uh, PyCharm, RubyBind, IntelliJ, which is probably the one you actually know. And WebStorm, which is probably their worst one. This is a killer. Like VS Code with PyLance. I'm constantly impressed with like the little mistakes it finds and the little suggestions it makes. And it's not even a 1.0 yet. It's a dev preview. Ah, I'm looking at their screenshots on their GitHub and this looks killer. It's killer. And it can figure out what frameworks you're using and all that kind of stuff. So if you are a Python dev or you're like one of our uh, writers learning Python, go ahead and try VS Code and go ahead and activate PyLance. I think that'll be enough for you. I should also add that the Python support in VS Code has line-by-line -line debugging support, and it is very good. So you can you can uh, basically ladder up to a full IDE if you want to. Yeah, that's nice. And it works great on Linux. So. Oof, jeez. And it weirdly renders fonts better than JetBrains. Sorry, guys, I'm going to say that every week until you fix it. <laughs> oh, JetBrains. And you know, you know he loves you. I do love them. I've been a customer for over a decade. I mean, it, it's just the, the font rendering on Pop is like, not great. So I'm just I'm just looking at this pylance, and uh, yeah, this seems like a just be fantastic if you're just learning too. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I mean, I guess we should talk about the snake in the room. Yeah. Okay. I spent several years making fun of Python because <laughs> I was a Ruby fanboy, and I am still somewhat disappointed that the Ruby community sort of kind of you know missed the boat on the ML stuff and this embedded stuff. Yes, there are projects out there. But compared to the, what the Python community has managed to do, it's not worth it. We're going deep on Python. I don't even know what to say. I don't, I don't mean for this to sound like it's going to sound. but um, Okay. Well, so like from a business standpoint, sometimes it's nice to hitch your wagon to something that's flashy because you can kind of ride the coattails and get adoption because people are interested in the new tech. And I mean, I think that was legitimately part of your angle in the past. Uh, this... This is like on the other end of flashy. This is whatever the opposite of flashy is, dull. <laughs> right? It's just mm -hmm. it's uh it's just good standard home cooking. You know, it's not uh it's not getting featured much up on giant tech keynote stages that's going to drive a lot of product. Do you feel like that is going to be challenge for how you market to customers, how you acquire new leads? Or is it? am I just misreading this situation? You're right. But there are two different types of customers, right? 
there are the customers who might listen to shows like JB or ATP or you know the network or whatever who know what they want, right? And they will say, I want this in Flask, I want this in Django, I want this in Rails, whatever. But there's a there's a like the regular world, right? I mean, God, I miss trade shows. Just just put that there. Who I'm never going to tell them what I'm doing this in unless they ask me, right? But by standardizing, there's an internal benefit to us building our libraries, building our internal tools all in the same language. It makes not to sound like super like horrible bougie capitalists here, but it saves me from the you know there's this one dev who is the only person who knows how to do this, and when he or she leaves, I'm you know forked, right? Well, also I, I think I focus, Mike. I mean, focus and simplicity are. But I, I think they pretty quickly translate to savings. And less cost overhead means more revenue. Less cost overhead means more profit too, right? Because if the revenue stayed the same. Well, yeah. The other thing is the flashy stuff was always about mobile, right? And it, I went into this in the Coderly episode a little more. But the type of customers I'm dealing with now don't really care about trying to get on TechCrunch, right? They want their farm like I'm thinking of one in particular. They want their farm where they're, you know, picking their produce to be automated and to work. Right? Or they want their, you know, their maintenance factory to work. Right. And if we can build them something on either Raspberry Pis or some other embedded system hooking up to a Flask, you know, up to a, a SUSE server because of course, running Flask, they're super happy, right? And that can all all of those problems I just described are very Python is very suited to solve. What I love about it is it's it's so practical. It's so rooted in solving a real world problem that is kind of divorced from all of the hype and crazy stuff that goes on in the tech industry. And it's tried and true, and it it is easy to wrap your head around. Like you, sure, it's like I mean I, I kind of snicker at it being Susa, but. There's a server component there. Well, it could be Debian too, right? Doesn't matter, but yeah. Sure, yeah. There's and that requires software development, but there also could be some support services that are, are you know like a support contract that is wrapped up in maintaining that server and the software that runs on that server. So there is there's there's obvious paths to ongoing revenue, but there's clearly lots of projects that are one off. And you're so right in that it means that you standardize on a skill set that it's much easier for you to find. It just seems like there's so many upsides because it even just clears up like having having to have a bunch of different tools or having to have different operating systems. Like all of that just kind of collapses. Exactly. It also solves. So let me give you a real world problem, right? So the first uh, version of Rabot, our automation tool, was written in Ruby. We quickly had a problem in that all of our customers, or the majority of our newer customers, are specifically requested python. Uh-huh. And yes, you can interface Ruby and Python 3, you know, FFI is wonderful, right? Like, but it's not exactly clean and as the code base was going to grow and we realized we had some technical debt that needed a big refactor. It was like, well, hang on. We have two guys here who are Ruby developers. One of them is manages all the devs and one of them is me, the president of the company who does all the sales effectively. Right. Maybe that's not what we should be doing, right? Considering we're both booked out on ongoing Rails projects right now, completely. But we have all these other developers who either already knew Python coming in or want to learn Python, right? Who want to just retrain in Python from like mobile or whatever. That kind of help. That's kind of great, right? Because then we can have a mentorship relationship where the, the folks who knew Python very well can help the people who didn't and as we scaled up, we were able to, over the years, say, okay, well, we have one Python project now. So we're going to put the senior guy who knows Python on it and pair him with somebody who's done some Python, right? And then we're going to just, as people got better, because these are all experienced developers. None of these are like, you know, super, you know, they're not greenhorns. So they've done a ton of Ruby. They've done a ton of, you know, whatever, uh, usually C Sharp. It ended up being that after, I would say, like three months, three to six months, we found that, well, actually, as we became more familiar with some of the common Python packages and some of the tricks with how to, like, you know, we had the email about performance, right? How to optimize Python in certain situations, particularly embedded. Mm-hmm. That institutional knowledge is now shared with everybody. And we're at the point where if somebody has a question, they just toss it into the general chat in Slack and it gets answered in like five minutes and we're off to the races. 
Right, right. So it's not it's not one guy that knows it. Everybody knows it. Right. It's the the big schism right now is honestly the VS Code people versus the PyCharm people. Because <laughs> we we have a few older gentlemen who are like, you will you will pry my jet brains from my cold dead hands. Why am I not surprised? Yes. That's a great point that is also and it, it of course it's even more beneficial when it's the same tooling. Right. Uh like one of the things that I really appreciate about Drew is we're all kind of using the same tools now. And so when and Drew's usually always figuring stuff out. And when he figures out something new, he shares it with Wes and I. And before we were all a team, that that kind of thing never happened. Um, so I know exactly what you're saying because it it's like the rising tide lifts all of the boats in the company. And uh there is that is such a that's a great example of why flattening out the stack and simplifying has obvious returns that you won't even really think of when you're considering doing it. I mean, you might, that one, but there's a lot you won't. And I don't know if I would have thought of that. I could could give you another one. Just It's kind of related, but since we're most of us with the, like I'm kind of one of the Ruby holdouts because we just have customers who have Ruby stuff, right? But we now have like a document internal that is a list of these are packages that we think we should import in almost every, let's say, Flask project that work well. And this is how we can quickly, here's a script to quickly scaffold up a Flask app the way we do it. Right. Right. So we're actually becoming more efficient over time. Man, that's like next level stuff there. That's pretty good. That's pretty great. And you will quickly develop skills that will just be applicable to future future jobs, assuming you figure out how to target to the right client base. How's that going? I miss trade shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's where like the the hype train being turned up to 11 on some platforms can be beneficial because it's just sort of, you know, it it creates a a need that has to be solved for people to to make money solving. So listen, if you have an iPad at a trade show and you can show a demo of like automating something that you think the people there need, they they're not going to ask you what's written in. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, uh, Home Assistant, which is I think one of the coolest open source projects out there, all Python. Well, I think so. Yeah, it's very. It's a pretty complicated Python app. I'm sure it would be better if it was in Rust, though, right? <laughs> of course, right? Maybe one day there'll be a fork. So, speaking of things that uh, are going to be rewritten in Rust, uh, how's your uh, how's your Microsoft Edge on Linux experience going so far? I kid about the Rust rewrite, but I needed the segue. Honestly, I think the only thing that could make it better is rewriting it in Rust. Oh, ha ha. Still so, really, really. I love it. It's my default. Come on, the thing doesn't even have sync yet. I can't, I can't. I don't want to sync. Oh, really? Why would I sync? Oh, you got to be kidding me because, well, I mean, do you use bookmarks? No, what are you, nuts? Okay. I, I use bookmarks. I pin two tabs. Gmail, which is my work email, and Twitter. That's it. Yeah, I guess. No, I love it. It's fast. It does not spin up my Thalia's fan quite as aggressively as Chrome, which is odd because it's Chromian under the hood. Although, I'll point out, I had to send you the link before the show. Wow, okay. So, so you had sync. Right, because <laughs> right, on Chrome, on the iMac Pro, I had the, the, the broadcast thing bookmarked. Yeah. I will bookmark it right now. They need the damn sync, though. That's what they need. I might actually, because it, it is it is frustratingly decent, I have to admit. Um, and you basically get all the advantages of using Chrome without all of the stuff that Google's added that, you know, you know, there's like a remote desktop protocol built into Chrome and there's a remote desktop server. <laughs> like Chrome is effectively an OS, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's gotten to be a bit much. So uh, I do like it there. I have it still installed, but I have to say I haven't really been using it much because it uh, it lacks the sync. So right now my whole sit- setup is I I got rid of the M1 Mac, which <laughs> people just on Twitter can't believe it. <laughs> they don't believe me. No, they're like, no, you're just you're, nobody returns an M1 Mac. How? Never. <laughs> Honestly, my workflow on Pop is just more efficient. And now, granted, I still can't change my desktop background automatically because we can't fix GNOME extensions. I'm sorry, GNOME broken extensions. Yeah. Yeah. And people really don't like it when I say that on Twitter. I got there's a lot of like blowback that comes from that one. Well, you know, you, everybody wants it to be the year of the Linux desktop and you're if you're coming on here and saying that it's not really there yet. You know, in Vista, you could automatically change your desktop background like every half hour. Just just like 
throwing that out there. You know, I, I think I, it, it, there is some good indications that later in 2021, GNOME 40 will come out, and they're going to start breaking some of the things off into independent threads, like the input stuff and whatnot. So it could get there. But, you know, I think they were always kind of doomed when they didn't have a standard documented way to actually make an extension and have it like there's no API, right? These are these are actual like hacks of the GNOME shell. So it's it's actually for all my like dunking on it, it's kind of impressive it doesn't crash more. Yeah. <laughs> there's people trying to work on this. You have elementary OS, Pantheon is a GTK environment. Um you have Budgie. I thought Pantheon was pretty far from GNOME Shell these days though. I don't think they use uh the like um the back end of GNOME Show. Okay. But I think they use a lot of the same like libraries um, and, and, and core technologies. But I think they have like their own compositor and whatnot. I'm not actually perfectly clear. Same with Budgie. I'm not, I know Budgie is also a GTK environment, but I don't, is it, it, I don't really understand how it's architected. Is it, is it architected in such a way that panels and, and what, and gizmos are separate processes or are they all one thread like GNOME Shell? Which is what at the end of the day, Mike, is really the problem. The problem is, is that an extension is capable of taking out your desktop, and it's it's even significantly worse in the Wayland future that we're all heading towards, because in the Wayland future, Mutter is also your display server, and so when it crashes, it takes out your entire session, and you go back and it restarts, and it's a significant more of a crash than what you get now with X11. So, so as a guy who runs Linux, like to do his job, right? And I am a bit of an enthusiast, but I'm not like you know, if if GNOME shell crashed every day, I would the iMac would be hooked up so fast, you, your head would spin. Right? Why is X11 not okay? Like, why do we need to go to Mutter? Um, so Mutter is is uh, okay. Well, let's let's back up. So Mutter is essentially a Wayland a, a Wayland client. It, it it talks Wayland. The thing about X11, the short version of it, is that it's it needed to be it actually needed to be replaced about twenty years ago. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. It's very old. Yeah. Architecturally, it's very hacked together. Security is poor. Applications can spy on each other. There's there's um, significant vulnerabilities that have been patched, but are kind of fundamental to how it operates at the same time. But also, it's just not uh, necessarily competitive anymore. Like if you have maybe like a full screen video on an X11 desktop, say like you're watching a YouTube video and you full screen it. If you've ever seen tearing in the video, or when you're playing a video game and you've turned, all the time, you see, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff doesn't happen on Wayland. Wayland is extremely smooth. It's it's just like it takes a computer and just brings it to the next level in terms of interface responsiveness, and it's just done in a more modern way. But it requires that the projects that use Wayland implement their own interfaces, essentially. There isn't, like, one display server. You build your own display server. Got it. Okay. So that's where, like, things like Mir fit in now. That's the canonical project. Or, like, if you're big enough, like Gnome Shell or Plasma, you just build it into your compositor. And that's that's what Gnome Shell has done. But the problem is when Gnome Shell crashes, Mutter crashes. When Mutter crashes, you lose your entire desktop session. You go log back in again. Everything's closed. It's significantly bad. And so I freaking love it, man. I, I, I think System76, well, it all actually starts, I'm going to give credit to where credit is due. Debian has been reliably producing a solid-based distro for forever. Canonical has done a fantastic job repackaging that up into a product and into a fantastic desktop just on its own. And then the folks at System76 have leveraged all of that hard work to really take things even to a finer level. My distro of choice. Yeah, it's really nice. But my fundamental issue is I, I cannot tolerate my desktop having weird crashes or weird performance jankiness. And I also just was constantly struggling with my three-monitor setup to the point where I'd often have to reboot my computer to get everything working again, and very frustrating. And so I switched back to Plasma, and I don't generally go around telling you you should switch, but it may be worth looking at because Plasma is architected in a way that is much more modern. It's built out of all of these widgets, and each one of them you know, can crash and not take down the rest of the system. They just individually go away and come back. It's, of course, all built around Qt, 
QML is a very common way for like just quick little nice applications to work. Plasma is a lot more stable. It just simply it takes a lot more to take it out because of how it's architected. Uh. I just eventually went back and switched to that because it it's more fiddly. And I essentially just, what I do is I spend a day going through and changing the settings for everything. I did do a video about it almost a year ago or so, but I, I go even further than I did in that video now. And I just kind of go through and I change the, the themes. I change the color scheme. I change fonts. I change the default settings for everything. I set up my key bindings. Then it's good for as long as I keep the install. And it just ticks away. Right now I'm running Fedora Plasma because uh, they have super fresh Plasma packages in that spin of Fedora. And I like to have really fresh Plasma. Uh, KDE Neon is also really great. And you get essentially the Ubuntu LTS base and then rolling Plasma. And Plasma has been really good about respecting your settings and not changing them um, and not breaking things during upgrades. The machine that I'm talking to you on is like a two-year-old install, and I've just upgraded it all along, and it's been fine. I pretty much upgrade it on a weekly basis. And um, while it is not quite as refined as GNOME Shell in some of the UI areas, it is a little more practical in what it lets you do. Like the built-in screenshot tool will be one of the best screenshot tools you've ever used. It has a built-in launch bar. You know, you do alt space bar, and the K runner pops up. It's going to be the most powerful launcher you've ever used. It has console. It's It's... Terminal, it's like the best, one of the best terminal emulators on Linux. It's just, it's really good. It's just, it's a high-end workstation grade, like industrial tool. Like, you know, when you go into a shop and you realize, oh man, these tools are way cooler and bigger than the tools that are in my garage or whatever, that's Plasma. It's it's a big, powerful tool. And um, like I, it has this concept of window and application rules Oh, man, I love this. I've got one big horizontal 1440p display, and then I've got two identical 1440p displays turned vertical to the sides. So I have one in the middle and then two on the sides. And I have window rules set up in such a way that it makes managing them really straightforward. they will, it will always open the window for Slack or Telegram or my web browser or my console or VS Code exactly where I want it, exactly on the desktop I want it, on the exact monitor I want it, every single time. And I love that kind of thing because I can basically just position the window where I want it and then I can go into the menu and I can say, remember all of these attributes about this window and apply it every time it launches at first startup. It doesn't apply it after that, but you can also even choose apply it every time or just initially. It's got all the options. And for me, that kind of stuff is is powerful. You know, it's nice. Like you go, you click on the network manager icon to see what your Wi-Fi or network connection is. And if you expand it out, it gives you a real-time graph of what your in and out transfer is. Uh, it's just all that kind of stuff. There's there If you want to install a new theme, there's a button that just goes out to the public repository and just gives you a list of all the possible themes and then you click a button and it downloads and installs the theme for you. <laughs> it's it's nice. And it feels fast and it scales really well to low-end hardware and high-end hardware. It it just simply it's not necessarily new user friendly. I I tried to switch to it 3 times before it stuck. And I'm, you know, I've been I've I have used Plasma on and off since it was called KDE and it was like at version two. And um, I still like had to really kind of stick with it. Now, now when I switched back to it, I really was like, oh yeah, this is where I'm staying and I'm just, I'm done moving now. And the nice thing about Plasma is you can pretty much get it on any distro you want. So you, you pick the Linux base that suits you best and then you just put the Plasma desktop on top of it. Yeah, okay. But see, I like all my pop fancy stuff, right? Like my... Like my tiled windows I'm using now. Yeah, I mean, definitely you can do some of that in Plasma, but it's a different beast. It's a different beast, and it wouldn't come out of the box, right? So we should we should uh, maybe talk about the the little whatever it was. Well, the back and forth on Twitter. This is why in Linux Unplugged, I've made my prediction that System seventy six is is going to fork GNOME. I think it could happen. 
and I think they should consider it because in GNOME 40, there's some big UI changes going. And the, the back and forth that you and I saw on Twitter was essentially System76 and team commenting that, you know, we were involved in this design process and we don't feel like our feedback was heard and we're not happy with the end result and we don't want to ship that to our users. So how would that work if they were to fork it? I mean, it could probably be a pretty minimal fork. You know, just essentially a step above what Canonical already does. Uh, you can apply a lot of vendor patches to GNOME Shell. So you just it's a step beyond that, I think. Really, you just, you need, you think about it. You, you need, as System76, you need something consistent. And when they switched to Pop! OS... They got that, right? They weren't like when they weren't dependent on canonical shipping Unity and then all of a sudden they changed it one day on them and now they're shipping GNOME. Like they took their future into their own hands, except for, well, this kind of stuff where Upstream wants to fundamentally change the way you navigate virtual desktops and running applications in a way that we fundamentally disagree with as a company. Well, that's still kind of changing the rug, pulling the rug out from underneath them, isn't it? And the only way to really fix that is to be in control of your own upstream and they just sync frequently with the project. I would definitely say that one of the, the maybe the differences that, and I can't speak for them, but just a thought, you know, like companies like mine, like I know another business owner here in the Tampa area who exclusively buys System 76 machines for his employees like I do. And certainly radical changes would, would not be appreciated, right? Not ideal. People don't like it when you move where the interface elements are. Right. Now, I, I guess one of my questions is, if they were to fork it, wouldn't that create a situation where their fork is always going to be behind? I don't, I don't know. I, I wonder. Endless OS does something kind of like this already, and then they kind of do these big sync-ups. The question I would ask instead, if I could change your question a little bit, is would it be fine for them to ship something that doesn't get updated as often as main GNOME? Uh, what, like, what if Pop! OS just essentially updated with the LTS? And that's when they ship their new version that, you know, during the LTS development cycle, they'd sync to the latest version of GNOME Shell. I think that'd be fine. You look at Linux Mint and, and projects like that that essentially address this market that want something that remains consistent. They're perfectly happy with stuff like that. They're like CentOS users, but not quite. <laughs> well, I would almost wonder, and I, you know, I don't know anything here, but just spitballing. It almost seems like Pop! OS is becoming kind of its own thing, even though it's technically like Ubuntu with GNOME Shell under the under the hood. But I kind of see a world where they start writing like their own applications, right? Yeah. That more closely tie into their, uh, you know, their fancy tiling. Hell, they're making a keyboard, right? Right. So. Yeah, and you, you would think you would want to be able to build and integrate that into the desktop you wouldn't want the upstream to be able to just like yank your chain all the time. No, exactly. And I think I'd, I'd definitely be in the market for a keyboard. I mean, there's a lot of interest as we've seen from our audience. <laughs> Chris, we all know ropes and keyboards. <laughs> You're always in the market. And so am I. If I could just wave a magic wand, it would be a shop like System76 takes what they are doing with Gnome Shell, but just ships Plasma. Because, because Plasma is made up of widgets you could make it look a lot like Gnome Shell if you invest the time. And they could fundamentally ship a Plasma desktop that they wouldn't have to really modify. They would just customize. And they could probably really, really refine a lot of the edges that I go through and set up myself and spend a day tweaking. And man, would I find it compelling. And I would be willing to even buy like Pop! OS commercially if it had that. Uh, I don't think they'd ever do that, but I, I would love it. I think they're so deep into the to the GNOME shell route, though. I know, and I think that's you know that's where their that's where their team's knowledge is, and and all of that. And I totally get it. I totally do. But I think it has become a crime against Linux desktop users that somebody hasn't come along and properly shipped a well positioned Plasma desktop because it is a really powerful tool. And I know I've gone on about this already on the show too much. But I just, I see where this can go for you. I can see how this can lead to frustration because I've been down the path you're on right now. And like as as somebody who still has just that, I can't help, I still have that bit of an advocate in me for Linux. I'm like, warning friend, there's going to be trouble down that road. <laughs> you may just want to take a different route now. I know the mountain looks tall, but 
in the long run, it'll lead you to a beautiful valley. <laughs> well, it, it, it's almost it's almost the classic software development problem that GNOME has, though, right? It's you have this awful technical debt, and I, I have inter, you know interviewed and spoken to people from the GNOME team on on my other show before. I get it; they're good people, but like, if you can't solve the extensions blow up your entire session problem, maybe you need to do that first, right? Like, you have to pay down the debt. And the understanding I got from them and I've gotten from other people in the community is the demon is so powerful at this point that the young priests and the old priests have already jumped out the window. Yeah. The exorcist, right? I think the the problem is is that there's already so much momentum on this system. And because they never had like this this widgets concept that these plasmoids that are written in QML. Right. Right. Uh, they, you know, they never and an API where they all talk to each other. They never had that. Now you look at the 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 SUSE desktop or the Ubuntu desktop or any any like popular GNOME desktop with the exception of Fedora. Uh, there's a lot of brand work that goes into that desktop that that utilizes these things that are officially not really supported. Like technically, they're not even a fan of theming. They don't really want you changing the theme either because I know I I've heard the lengths that System seventy six had to go to. Yeah. Their idea is is that, of course, developers are building applications expecting to look like this on people's computers, and then they go switch the theme, and then they bitch that something doesn't work right. I get it. Yeah, I, I have that problem all the time, right? So, But I will just, like, from a business perspective, business, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we just went from Mac OS, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't just, but in business time, it's not that long, right, to standardizing on POP, to now consider switching to KDE or Plasma mm. would be crazy. Unacceptable. Right. Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, there you could install it alongside. You just end up having like two terminal apps and stuff like that. Yeah. See that's like messed up. Yeah. It's not as good. It's not as good. I know I endlessly beat this horse, but I almost hope they do fork it and maybe like try to try to exercise the steam and or just like crazy idea, build it into Pop OS, like the stupid feature. Like I'm sure I have my dumb feature of wanting to change the desktop background, and I get it. That's a dumb feature. I just don't have it now, and now my desktop doesn't crash all the time. But I'm sure there are, for instance, I used to use a Pomodoro extension that every update to GNOME Shell would crash my session all the time, right? There's like lots of cases that are less stupid than the ones I'm advocating here where maybe you just need, if you're going to fork it, core functionality built into your fork that just does this, right? And it's not an extension. I don't know how you would do it. I don't know enough about like developing for Gnome Shell. But it, it seems like the basics should be solvable in a way that isn't throw everything out and go to KDE. Yeah. There must be a way to bake it in. And maybe it's you break those things out into... A separate app or something that runs alongside. Geary doesn't crash, right? And Geary has the nice notifications and everything. I mean, why why can't you just write an application for it and build it in, theme it? I would think that'd be the direction they would go. Is they would right. they would build it in and um, probably still making extensions available because they'd probably try to keep it as compatible with GNOME Shell as possible because they get they get the benefits. It'd be fascinating to watch, super tight line to walk, and you wonder like. Uh, if there wasn't just a better way to go with plasma, but I, I know I shouldn't beat the horse. I know, I know. And um, I also totally appreciate that you just, you know, you finally got switched over to pop and standardize. You're not going to go try out budgie or you're not going to go try out plasma. Or I get it. I, I, I really don't think you should either. I worry about these limitations in good home shell pissing you off and be like, well, you know, screw it for my machine. I'm going back to the Mac. Um, but well, but that would cause a cascade, right? One, once I did it, that would be yeah. It sets a message and yeah. a tone. And I, yeah. I actually kind of feel like Gnome Shell's on the right track too. Forty looks like it's going to be a solid improvement, and they've really been improving it a lot. I mean, this situation that you are experiencing now was significantly worse in like the three hundred eight, three ten era of Gnome Shell. Okay, and it's gotten to the point now where like one or two things don't work. But back in that era, it was everything didn't work. It was it was a real train wreck. And the Gnome Shell team has done, a, I think, a lot of hard work to get it not only in a lot better shape, but also they've shored up a lot of the technical 
and kind of less than ideal ways that some of the GPU pathways were designed. And, the, and mm-hmm. overall, the responsiveness has, has, has improved tremendously. And so it's, it's in a much better shape. So I think in a, another year, I think it still won't be fixed, but I think it'll be probably 50% better. So at least it's going in the right direction, right? Hey, progress. I mean, really, if you look at it from like a five-year cycle instead of a yearly cycle like I do, but if you look at it from more like, you know, you stick, you stick with 2004 based systems until the next LTS comes out, then it's actually, it's like a, it's a crap ton of work that goes in. It's like, whoa, look at all these improvements in the last five years. So it just kind of depends on how, how close you zoom in on it all. But uh, it's fascinating, the whole switch for your shop to Python. And uh, I hope we get to talk about it more here on the show. And we did talk a lot about uh, some of the business reasons and some goals in 2021 that we both have in our Codely report. You've mentioned it a couple times, and I've mentioned it. Mm-hmm. That is the uh, special episode that we record for our Coder QA members once a quarter. When the quarter comes close to an end, we record it. Uh, and it'll probably be published very soon. Uh, as we record right now, it's not in the feeds yet, but it will be very soon. So you can become a member and you get access to that one and the previous one. There's been one other one so far, and that's at coderqa.co. You also support the show and get a limited ad feed uh, which uh, you may prefer as well. Uh, go find Mike on Twitter. He's at Dumanoku. His company is at The Mad Botter Inc. I'm at Chris Lass. And the podcast network is at Jupiter Signal. And yeah, you guessed it. There's also a show Twitter. That's at Coder Radio Show. Links to what we talked about today? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's at coder.show slash 393. Some good stuff in there. Also, over on that website, you'll find our contact form. We'd love to hear from you. It's a big part of our show. you also see our RSS feeds and subscribe links. And then last but not least, why don't you join us for the Coder Happy Hour live Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Coder Radio. We'll see you right back here next week. 